the National Archives podcast series, Henry III Fine Rolls, presented by Professor David Carpenter. Now, in this learned audience here in the National Archives, of course, I don't have any difficulty, but sometimes going to give talks on Henry III fines and fine rolls, one faces that um, inevitable problem with all medieval history that um, both on terminology, oh my God, what are fines and what are fine rolls, but even worse, of course, that with King Henry III, people often know absolutely nothing about him. And he's a, a king not so easy, not, you know, not, not graspable in the way bad King John uh, might be. Uh, of course, it's pretty Shakespeare never begun with, began with Henry III. It'd be so much easier if there was a Henry III and Simon de Montfort Shakespeare play. Or possibly then there would then be a Verdi opera, wouldn't there? And Because um, there is the Sicilian Vespers, which is the nearest um, we get. But I always think Henry III and Simon de Montfort would have, if, he, if Verdi had written it, it would be almost as great as Don Carlos. But anyway, these are uh, merely by the way. Now here is Henry III from his tomb in Westminster Abbey. And, um, of course, he's the son of King John. He reigns from 1216 to 1272. Um, that was commissioned 20 years after Henry died, and it, the actual order survives, and it's for an effigy ad similitudinem regis. So, you know, maybe it gives us some impression, that slightly sort of refined, slightly worried, puzzled look with the furrowed brow may sum up a little bit of what Henry III felt and possibly looked like uh, towards the end of his life. The, his body, of course, must be perfectly preserved in Westminster Abbey um, because the coffin was never open. You probably know the story of Dean Stanley uh, of the Abbey in the 1870s who wished actually to um, open Henry III's tomb and in fact lifted off the, the coffin, lifted off the effigy and was going to come back in the evening to actually open the, the coffin. And um, unfortunately the other canons of Westminster got alarmed during the course of the day and approached Queen Victoria about what was going on and she said she wasn't amused by this um, scheme to open the coffin of one of her predecessors. And, and so Dean Stanley was stopped. But the only thing he did do was to, marry, to, to measure the outer limits of the coffin, which was six foot one and a half. Now, as obviously coffin length is different from body length, uh, I think we must think of Henry III as someone a bit like his father, of middle height, perhaps five foot five and a half five foot six. I used to be very, very keen that the coffee, that sort of infrared techniques and all sorts of modern prosop, I guess say prosopography, that's something different, isn't it? But you know what I mean. Some sort of x-rays could go into the coffin so we could actually see uh, into it. But since then, I've written a very learned article on, based on documentary record sources showing what Henry III was buried in, his sorts of uh, scepter and robes and so on. And now I'm very strongly against opening the coffin or spying into it because it might prove I'm wrong about, <laughs> about, about it all. Anyway, so it's a very long reign that the whole, most of the 13th century, 1216, to 1272. Here, if we go on, is Henry III on his seal, and there is Hen on his first seal on the left, and there he is sitting elegantly on his wonderful gold um, coin, which was minted in, in, in 1257. And there are only six or seven of those which survive, because uh, like quite a lot of other things Henry III tried to do, it was a flop. 
and um, the mayor and citizens of London told him to his face it was useless. And uh, so not very many of them were minted. And I think I'm right in saying it's the most valuable British coin at auction at the moment, so a quarter of a million pounds. So um, if my grateful students ever wish to sort of <laughs> know, it's, it's a fantasy that I, I would love to have one um, of them. Anyway, so if we try and think about Lorraine a little bit before I come on to fine rolls and, and, and fines. I suppose it's very important reign from the point of view of politics and the constitution. At the start of the reign we have the implantation of Magna Carta into political life. At the end of the reign we have the uh, development of Parliament and the actual subtitle of the second phase of the project is From Magna Carta to the Parliamentary State. It's a reign which seems the revival of queenship um, no English queen had played an important part in political affairs really since Eleanor of Aquitaine in the 1160s. Eleanor of Provence, on the other hand, who married Henry III in 1236, changes all that and comes to play a very, very feisty role in politics, government, society in the reign, which of course climaxes in the period of Montfortian civil war, rebellion, the Great Revolution of 1258. It's a reign which sees the tremendous development of the common law, forms of legal procedure. It's a reign which sees the commercialisation of England. 2,000 new markets and fairs, a rocket in the money supply. That's why my, one of my colleagues at um, King's, uh, Stephen Baxter, who's a great expert on Doomsday Book, has one pathetic Anglo-Saxon coin which he touts round to all the students. Whereas I've got 20 or 30 coins of uh, Henry III. Mind you, probably they cost in bulk. You can get these coins, Henry III coins, of course, on eBay all the time for about £5, £10. They're very, very cheap to pick up. Whereas poor old Stephen has to pay huge sums of money for his one Anglo-Saxon coin. Sorry, what this reflects, of course, is the gigantic increase in the, um, in the money supply in, in, in Henry's reign. Um, and then, of course, it's a reign which sees a tremendous development in, in building. The great Ely, Salisbury, and, of course, Westminster Abbey. And there we have Henry III's own uh, Westminster Abbey there, and I'll, I'll come back to that in a little bit. Now, if we, in a way, I suppose you could say, well, a lot of these things are good things, and one might put into that category the pastoral movement, the advent of the friars, tremendous transformation of the religious life of the country. Um, some great, great bishops, three English bishops in the 13th century are made saints. And yet, on the other hand, of course, you think of the rise in the population, which is, I think, is behind a lot of these commercial developments, outrunning the means of the land to support it, large numbers of peasants perhaps living on the edge of subsistence, literally starving to death in years of, of bad harvest. In 1258, for example, uh, Matthew Paris, great chronic of the period, describes the bodies piling up in, in the village streets who dead from from famine. Um, and of course, peasantry, but also Jews, um, the fine rolls themselves, as I'll come on to say, show a lot about the persecution, the taxation of the Jews. And in a way, the reign of Henry III prepares the way for the expulsion of the Jews from England in 1290. I think in a way, the different 
phases of the reign are summed up very well in some of the sculpture in, in Westminster Abbey. On the one hand, you have the wonderful sensing angels, uh, and also the painting. You have the, the wonderful picture of Christ on the retable of Westminster Abbey, Christ the saviour of the world, holding the world in his hand. You know, very reassuring, comforting, humane. And yet, on the other hand, in the Abbey, you have sort of gargoyle-type sculptures of sort of, of heads with pinched cheeks, staring eyes. They seem to be people in pain, in agony, perhaps um, starving to death. So all sorts of, of developments are taking place in this, in this crucial reign in, in English history. Now, just a word about Henry personally. So let's go back and have a look at the, him on his seal, and perhaps even better, on his... Uh, throne. Um, what sort of person was he? The fine rolls throw a lot of light on that and I shall come on to the fine of the month feature. Um, the fine of the month, which shall be going up in a little bit, is about Henry III's sense of humour. And Henry III did have a, um, in fact, what I've just been claiming and arguing about yesterday is that the first documentary proof that a King of England made a joke is actually on the fine rolls. Um, and as we can only believe documents, and we can't believe chroniclers, this is the first known joke made by a king of England. Um, and what is it? Well, it's, it's this, and you can all read about this in a, in a day or so. And I think it does get sort of close to the sort of nice side of Henry III. It was on the ship coming back from Gascony in 1243. And on the fine rolls, there's a memorandum which says, Henry III, uh, Ludendo cum Petro Lepoitevin. And Ludendo, I think, me, you can't just say playing, but I think it means him having, making a joke, having a joke with Peter the Poitevin, or I think even better, playing a joke on Peter the Poitevin, ordered the following things to be recorded on the fine rolls. And then it says, but one, with Peter not seeing, he ordered them to be immediately crossed out. Now, what was the joke? Well, the joke was a whole series of absurd debts that Peter the Poitevin was supposed to owe the king. So it says he owes £100 to the king for a transgression on the ship. He owes... 50 chickens, which he promised the king on the first day of the voyage. Um, he, he has sold two, 171 tonnes of wine, because Peter the Poitvin was in charge of the, the king's wines, uh, which he bought for £2 a tonne and sold for £3 a tonne, and he, orders, he um, owes the king all the difference. So all these ridiculous debts are recorded on the fine rolls. And I think the idea was that Peter the Poitevin comes along and the fine rolls are laid out on the table and he sort of looks at all these debts and he thinks, oh my God, what is going on? How have I managed to incur all these debts? And there you can imagine Henry III with his other sort of entourage sort of standing there as Peter the Poitevin goes like this and they're all chortling around in the, in the background. But what Henry III, which shows his knowledge of records in a way, what he didn't want to do was the, the joke to go too far, because if he'd left the debts on the fine rolls, then they might have been exacted by the exchequer. And so that's why Henry III, with Peter not seeing, 
or does it to be crossed out? The point about him not seeing was that clearly Henry III wanted to prolong the joke. He didn't want Peter the Protovin to know that these had been erased. And so for um, hours, days afterwards, Peter the Protovin will be going around sort of wondering what on earth is happening. No doubt at the end he's told, and they all have a, um, a, a good laugh about it together. I think that does get us quite close to the sort of person Henry was. I think he was you know, easygoing, very affable, humorous with those around him. But that wasn't the primary characteristic which contemporaries would pick out. Um, and I think the two primary characteristics they would pick out was his piety um, and his simplicity. Now, his piety, um, of course, came most strikingly in his rebuilding of Westminster Abbey for his patron saint, Edward the Confessor. And, of course, everything we see here was built by Henry III. There's the Confessor's Shrine, and there's Henry III's own tomb um, beside it. And he spent um, two years' annual revenue building the Abbey between 1245 and 1269. That was one form of his party. Another was tremendous emphasis on feeding of paupers. So routinely he fed 100 paupers every day, 150 when the Queen was at court. And on special occasions he would feed ever so many more. So on the feast day of the Confessor, on the 13th of October 1261, when we got documentary evidence, he fed 5,016 paupers. Um, so there was no sort of people starving on the Strand or begging on the Strand in Henry III's day. They were all down at Westminster having a good uh, meal. Um, you sometimes wonder where they got all these paupers from. And sorry, that's a, um, a, I mustn't um, get into further stories about that. That's a, another story. The other thing was Henry's attendance at Mass. I mean, the Angevin kings, Henry II and John, all sorts of stories about them sort of gossiping and doing business during Mass. Or just uh, Edward II, of course, was so lazy, he often couldn't get up in the morning in time for it. Henry III is quite different from that and attends Mass rigorously. And the uh, records of his own government sometimes show him attending more than one Mass a day, sometimes two and sometimes three. So what I hope I've given you so far is a picture a little bit of the reign itself and of Henry III uh, within it. Sorry, I've talked about his party. I haven't talked about his um, simplicity. And simplicity was a, a term, simplex, rex simplex. It, it, it comes up again and again in all the sources, chronicle sources, record sources. What does it mean? It, it's a very difficult, one of these very difficult words to translate, which it can mean um, that the king is, or you are, honest, straightforward, some saints are described, holy men are described as simplex, guileless. But on the other hand, it can mean you're plain stupid. And I think Henry III was a little bit in between the two, that it was sort of naivety, uh, a, a dif difficulty in actually calculating the results of actions, how to get from A to B, maybe the product of his long minority, you know, not of, with lots of flattering ministers around him. It's a very difficult period in which, if you grow up as a king, to actually um, sort of, uh, you know, sharpen your, your political teeth. Um, so now I really have given you a, a feeling for the reign as a whole and of Henry's place within it. Can I come on now then to fines and fine rolls and the project and um, what was so important about them? Well, 
What are fines, first of all? Again, this is something which gives medieval history a bad name because fines then aren't quite what fines are now, parking fines, all sorts of other <coughs> fines. A fine is essentially an offer of money to the king, or a fine in the fine rolls, an offer of money to the king in return for a concession or favour. So it's an agreement to pay money. I, and that can verge from entirely voluntary fine to have a particular concession. It can, on the other hand, be a sort of compulsory fine, but it's not normally a punishment. Now, there are a huge multiplicity of things for which you had to fine in the, uh, in the 13th century. Most straightforwardly, a baron would fine, would pay uh, to, to inherit his lands. He would pay a relief. He would fine for, make a money payment. So the fine rolls show... Uh, the whole sort of baronial succession into inheritances. Tenants-in-chief pay money to succeed. But beyond that, if you wanted to set up a new market or fair, if you wanted to uh, have a private park for hunting, if you wanted to initiate, uh, in any kind of non-routine way, a law case, if you wanted to further a law case, you would offer money to the king. And all those things would be... Uh, recorded on uh, the fine rolls. There's tremendous amounts about women on the fine rolls, noble women who might offer money to the king so that they could marry whoever they wished. It's an important source for that. Now, so there, that's the fine type business, but gradually in Henry's reign, the um, a, a whole lot of multiplicity of other financial business come related to taxation of the Jews, royal towns, comes to be put on the fine rolls and so they become um, bigger and bigger. Now this is what the rolls uh, look like. In actual size that would be a probably more like that. So the, they're recorded, the fines and the other business are recorded on membranes and this is the membrane from the very very first fine roll of Henry III. I remember once sort of showing this up to our MA students and cheerfully saying, oh, well, now let me read you the first line and becoming stumped embarrassingly with the, the second word. But actually, the first word is rottle and uh, rottleus. And you can see this funny little arm coming out of the, um, the L l like, like this. And it was the next word which stumped me. And it, but it is actually finium, obviously, it's finium, but it's F-I-N-I, and then an extraordinary U with only one tiny little arm sort of coming up like this, and then M, and then finium, Anni, Regis, Henrique, Primi. Uh, it's beautifully written, that heading. Later in the reign, unfortunately, no one bothered off hardly to put headings in at all. Um, and when you think that was written in the middle of a civil war, uh, which might well have thrown the nine-year-old Henry um, off, off his throne. Um, you know, it, sh it shows tremendous confidence in, in the future. So, essentially, the fines and the other business are written on these membranes, and then one is sewn onto the other. And they gradually get bigger and bigger during the uh, course of the reign. So if we... Sorry, there's the lovely... I should have shown you that. That's the lovely heading from the, the first one, and here's this very puzzling, as I said, F-I-N-I, and then this funny little U, Finium, um, there. But it is beautifully done. I, I must say, I'd love to have that role, so that, um, again, maybe I need to be frisked when I um, go out of here. And here's the first membrane for the last 
role of Henry III's reign. As you can see, there is just a tiny little uh, hedging at the top. Lots of the later, there, there's the heading for the, for the last, um, um, mem last role of Henry 56. Actually, I think there was just a very short one for year 57, so it's not, but it's the last complete role. Um, and that's, I think that's, I think that's about 1218, 1219, showing the number of membranes there are um, early in the reign. And then if we go on towards the end of the reign, which I think is the last one, you see how ever so many more membranes there are. And um, in fact, there's a lot more uh, actual writing on the, the, the membranes as well. Now, the fine rolls then in that case, I think, do shed a tremendous light on the whole government, politics, society, wider culture of the, the 13th century. And that's why the subtitle to the project is a window onto uh, English history. Why was the product necessary? Well, of course, all these rolls are treasured up here in the uh, National Archives. Probably I ought to have tried to get permission. I never have got permission, of course, to have had them out here, and we could have all inspected them had we, uh, had we wanted to. And, um, but they're all here, but of course the, they've hardly ever, they were hardly until the project actually published. All there was was a two-volume uh, edition of them in the 1830s, which was entirely devoted for genealogists, uh, a very laudable, of course, uh, family historians. So, you know, nothing has, has changed really. But as I've said, because the fine rolls record the succession to inheritances, um, they have a lot of information relevant to genealogists. But what happened was that someone went through the fine rolls of Henry III and just exerted from them anything of genealogical interest. So if there was an entry, David, son of Edward Carpenter, offers the king £20 for a set up a new market, um, that would get in because it says David, son of Edward. If, on the other hand, it just said David Carpenter offers the king £20 to set up a new market, it wouldn't get in because it has no genealogical information. And so the result was that actually only about 15% of the material on the fine rolls was um, put into, the, um, into these two volumes. So that's how the state of play was, and eager historians like myself had no alternative but to sort of read them all through for themselves, um, as I did in the um, National Archives, as they then were in Chancery Lane in the, in the 1970s. But of course, not everyone is able to do that. So that was where the project came. And initially, it was the idea of Louise Wilkinson, who's a, uh, an academic at Christchurch, Canterbury, and she suggested we should put together a project, put up a bid to the Arts and Humanities Research Council uh, in order to um, publish them properly. And we have, the bid was successful, and we've had a, a follow-up bid as well for, um, for two, uh, so there have been two projects, and actually the, the, the project ends finally at the end of this year. Now, I think from the very start, uh, well, let's have a look at the splash page of the project. I rather like splash pages. I now, they're now no, no longer in fashion, and that you should go straight to the actual home page. But anyway, uh, we've still got our splash page, and as you see, it's <coughs> Canterbury Christchurch Kings, and um, I'll come on to the, uh, the computing side of it 
in, in due course. The, I think from the word go, the project did have a philosophy, which is why it may well have got the funding it did, which is, was to make the fine rolls as available as possible to as wide a constituency of users as possible. Um, in other words, it had an impact agenda, if you like, before uh, that became a buzzword with all the funding councils. And so how did we want to do that? The first thing was that this was essentially an electronic project. Um, it was to put the product, if you like, make it freely available to everybody online. And obviously this is online and you can see from your bookmarks what you actually put in to um, call this up. So that's the first thing. The second was that the heart of the project was to translate the fine rules, which of course are in Latin, into English. And sorry, there is the home page. And there we have the uh, translations listed and you can click on them. And then if you do click on them, you call up the translations, and that's the translation right at the very start um, of the reign. So that was the, the next thing, that the whole thing was going to be translated. But it was also linked to the actual images themselves, so that, that there isn't an intermediate Latin text. Sometimes people say to me, why isn't there a Latin text as well? Well, of course, we'd love to have given you three things, the translation, the Latin text, and the images, but um, obviously the resources, we didn't have the resources to do that, so we left out the intermediate Latin text, because in a way, of course, most people, am I right in saying, who could read the Latin text, can also read the actual, um, uh, sorry, let's go back um, to, can actually read the, um, the, uh, the, the images. So uh, this was an image done for a little art presentation I did last year about the project at the time when Michael Wood's thing about Kibworth was coming out. And Michael Wood f promised to come to the presentation and stand there. And as you can see, this is the William de, de Kibworth in, in Leicestershire. And, um, but unfortunately, he got the day wrong and turned up a day late. <laughs> so he, he didn't actually come. And, uh, but fortunately, he came subsequently, and we've taken lots of photographs of him sort of standing up uh, like this, uh, pointing at it. But as you can see, we can therefore zoom, and we'll have some more examples of that, to the actual original uh, text. So the images were very important. Now, the next thing which was important was that an electronic search facility. And so the idea was you can put in a person, a place, or a subject, and then throughout the whole length of the roles, you can search for, um, for these. And clearly that's a gigantic saving of time, isn't it? Because whereas before, if you were interested in a place or a person, you had to trawl through, it would take weeks and weeks to do all these roles. Now in a moment, you can put in a person, David Carpenter, Simon de Montfort, and you can literally call up all the references to them in the roles and um, just print them out. And so if we go on here, you see we put in Darlington. The reason for putting in Darlington was that when I gave this little presentation last year, the head of the Arts and Humanities Research Council, I found out, came from Darlington. So I thought it would please him to see his own uh, birthplace demonstrated. And so we put in Darlington and 
uh, actually there are two references, quite interesting, both when the king was staying at Darlington, and then to fascinate him and astound him even more, we then zoom to the actual uh, Latin of an image of it, and there you can see Derlington. Um, well, that was a small, but a, a longer example is if we put in Stephen Langton, Archbishop of Canterbury, you see there are uh, 34 references here, and you print out the first 20, and then you can do the other 14. And that's a good example of how very, very quickly you can just get out everything for an important person. And also, if you want to make it a more sophisticated search, supposing you're interested in the extent to which Stephen Langton um, was founding markets on his land, you can then, in the search, cross um, Stephen Langton and market. And as you see, he founded two markets. Uh, one of these is at Uckfield in Sussex, and the other was at his manor of Reculver in Kent. Or if you're interested in markets more generally, uh, if you just put in markets, this is just down to 1232, 114 references. Or if you're just interested in markets in Yorkshire, um, but, 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 you, this, well, this shows you what it looks like. You put in Yorkshire, you put in markets, and let's see what happens. Um, Yorkshire markets, 1216, 1230, there are four results. So four markets were founded in Yorkshire in that um, time period. So I hope that gives you an idea of the basic product. It's the translations, the search facility, the images, and you can use it for a huge variety of history. Now, what else have we got? We've got a historical introduction to the reign, so, uh, both, well, historical introduction both to the roles, the nature of the roles, and to the reign, and we've also got a fine of the month feature. Now, this is where you all come in, because every month uh, a member of the project team or outside scholar writes something about material of interest in the fine rolls, or occasionally just uh, of, uh, of conjunct, if there is such a word, um, influence. Uh, this was just a map to indicate the places which, at the end of last year, had had fines of the month uh, written about them. So it shows a fascinating spread uh, throughout England. Nothing much in the north, um, but maybe some of you can put that right, because as I've said, we very much encourage um, people from outside the project to contribute fines of the month. And so a lot of these were actually contributed. Nunny, uh, which um, the village of Nunny in Somerset was written by the good citizens of Nunny, who they used a, or villagers of Nunny, they used the fine rolls to date their market charter. And I hope there's going to be one from Faversham, because uh, they've got a market charter which you can date more exactly from the uh, fine rolls um, Two. Now, there is a prize. There's a prize for the best fine of the month done in any one year by someone outside the project. And last year, the, the villagers of Nani won it. And it's a £50 book token. So there you are, uh, that it, it, a real incentive for you to, to um, have a go. And one of the good things, of course, about it all being electronic is that nothing, if we have a huge number of entries, or at any rate, even we may put them up, even if you haven't won, uh, but you can put up more than one a month. So that we can have fines of the month should sufficient flow of material um, make that possible. So those are the fines of the month. Now, next thing is there's also a blog. And you can read Henry III's own personal blog, 
on the site. And it's his blog for 1261. Now, the reason for that is that 1261 was a very dramatic year in which England was on the verge of civil war. 1261 is the one year in the whole of Henry III's reign which has got the same calendar as this year, 2011. That means that Easter Day was on the same date, and therefore the whole ecclesiastical calendar is the same. And it means that every day of the week in 2011 and 1261 is on the, the same day. So what Henry III has been doing is every week, actually this started in March, every week since March, he's been writing his blog for the week. And uh, you can go and look at where he was this week, therefore, in 1261 by calling that up. And I'm afraid he's having a really tough time. And he's in the Tower of London, not as a captive, but because all round him there are threats of, of civil war. So uh, he's trying to negotiate a settlement with uh, the insurgent barons who are at, at Kingston-on-Thames. So you can read all about this. And the, the the end of each blog now for the last few weeks I'm saying, Will it, is it peace or is it war? And um, we are still waiting to, to, see, um, to see what happens. So there's the blog, and we have other things on the blog uh, uh, as well. So uh, again, I'm very wel welcome photographs, comments, anything. And finally, that which, uh, there is a Twitter. You can follow us on, as with all these projects now, um, there's a tweet, and I did one this morning. I said, I'm coming to the National Archives. No doubt that's why you're here. You saw it. <laughs> I'm coming to the National Archives to give this talk about, um, about the project at, 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 at 2 o'clock. So um, there's uh, Twitter too. Now, I haven't yet mentioned another important feature of the project, which is the book publication by Boydell. And I think, although this isn't a, a primary electronic project, I do see the parallel book pu publication is very, very um, important. And we've got three volumes out at the moment, and another one, I hope, will be out um, next year. Now, if we go on, um, I've just, I haven't really time to talk about some of the major themes which have emerged, but I think the fine rolls really do shed light on this crucial change from Magna Carta to the parliamentary state. Uh, the, the overall theme which they show, although they, they fit into all sorts of themes, the history of women, and here is a, a wonderful entry for Isabella de Fortibus, the Countess of uh, Almal. Um, there's a tremendous amount of material on the history of the Jews, and this is a sad, sad um, thing in a way. These are all the Jews Henry III was sent off to various religious houses telling them to look after them, who, Jews who'd converted to Christianity. What happened was that Henry III, as you, some of you may know, in fact on the site of what used to be the public record office building in Chancery Lane, founded a, a house for Jews who'd converted to Christianity, the Domus Conversorum. And um, it's now, of course, the old public record office building and now King's College's library are, are on the site. And um, Unfortunately, it filled, got filled up, and when Henry III came back from Gascony early in 1255, he was appalled to find lots of Jews had nowhere to live because the Domus Conversorum was, f uh, was filled up. So what he did was he thought, I'll pack individual Jewish groups off to a lot of the religious houses around the country with a little letter telling them, uh, look after these people. And this is the list of the, 
of groups of Jews sent. And it's, rather, it's pathetic in a way if you look at it, because there's lots of little family groups. Um, so if you look, there's um, Richard the Conversus and Margaret, his wife, and they're sent to the Abbot of Abingdon. Um, there are often some children too, um, Thomas of Ox, Ox um, sorry, Abbot of Convent in St. Edmunds, let's see if we can find, um, or Breda and daughter and so on. So, they were, so, and unfortunately then a lot of the religious houses wouldn't accept them and they and refused to accept them and so they all came back to Henry III and then he p uh, equipped them with another much more angry letter telling the religious houses to um, to admit them. Um, going back to Parliament, I mean, this is a fascinating entry, and it, you see the and it's Parliamento that, that Isabella's to come to the next Parliament, and especially put in above the line. And it shows the beginnings of the development of Parliament. And why was the parliamentary state necessary? In a way, the fine rules show that, because the money from fines gets less and less and less as the reign goes on. And the reason for that was just that the power of kingship to exact arbitrary sums of money from people for favours, I think, was diminishing because of Magna Carta. And so the only alternative is taxation from Parliament, and hence the transition from tax, uh, um, via taxation to the parliamentary state. Now, I must stop. I hope I've given you some impression of what's in the fine rules. Thank you very, very much in indeed. I, you must now all return to your own research. And, um this event was recorded on the 17th of November 2011 at the National Archives, Kew.